David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. Uh, welcome everyone, very nice to see you, those who don't know me, my name is Ed, and along with Hannah, I lead the church that meets here, and today, it's everyone's favourite, David and Goliath. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you, uh, but the ending's really good, uh, and um, it's actually the whole of chapter 17 in 1 Samuel, and uh, because I'm assuming most people are pretty familiar with it, I'm going to kind of reference little bits here and there. Uh, but the meat of the story, Jason is going to come and read uh, to us just to familiarize ourselves once again uh, with what happens. Round of applause for Jason. Hello. There we are. All right. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. 
So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Thank you very much, uh, Jason. Um, So this is obviously one of the most famous stories, not just in the Bible, but in the whole world ever. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote wrote a book about it, and when that happens, you know it's a classic. Uh, And if you were to go out um, onto the street and ask a random person, what is this story about? No doubt they would say something like, well, it's about the little guy triumphing over the bully against all the odds. Which, of course, it is on one level. No doubt we've heard it like that. It's why we see David and Goliath stories everywhere, from literature to sports to business to politics to the natural world. Plucky underdogs getting one over the mighty establishment. And we find them moving, these stories, do we not? Who of us did not leap for joy and punch the air when, confronted by the evil Swackhammer and his bullying gang of Nedlucks, the downtrodden Bugs Bunny and his fellow Looney Tunes enlisted the help of acting's Michael Jordan and, against all odds, (laughs) defeated these tyrannical thugs in an epic game of cosmic space Jam basketball. (laughs) And isn't it great that they made Space Jam 2? We find them moving, don't we? Because uh, we love the story of the plucky underdog. However, I want to suggest that the message of actually the original David and Goliath story is actually much more than just a message that these sort of modern stories have co-opted. It's much more than the little guy overcomes the big guy. And it's also much bigger than, I think, how often it has been taught to children. In Sunday school, you may have been presented with this story as a sort of moral lesson. Be like David, we say. If you have faith like him and trust in God, you can overcome anything. Heard that before? Even the biggest giants in your life will come toppling down if you just believe. There can be miracles. The problem for this is kind of twofold. Firstly, this story was never actually really meant to be read as a moralizing one at all. There are obviously some lessons that we can learn from it, and we will come on to those in a minute, but these are only really secondary to the main point, and the main point is this. God wins. He has won, he is winning, and he will win. This is a story about God. This is a story about who he is, what he does. He is the subject. He is the hero. And he it is who is asserting his will on the world. He is not distant and far off in his heavenly palace, watching as all this sort of arbitrary stuff goes around. He is in there, in the muck, winning for his people. He it is who is revealing his character and demonstrating his world-changing love for his people. And secondly, it's problematic. Because this specific moralizing lesson that we tell two kids that you may have grown up with, just have faith like David and you can do anything, all problems will come toppling down if you just believe. It's not just unhelpful. It actually can be incredibly damaging to people's faith, that idea. Because a lot of the time, in lots of different circumstances, throughout life, it's just not true. A point we will come on to in a minute. So I wonder if we can perhaps park some of our pre-existing ideas about this famous story and hear it afresh from a different perspective this morning. 
the key to doing that is understanding who we actually are in this story. There are, of course, two main characters. There is evil, godless, enormous Goliath, and then there is innocent, faith-filled, compelling David. And we know we don't want to be Goliath, right? So we're obviously David. We love to be the hero. Don't we write ourselves into the hero of every story? We are David. Yes, I wonder what it was like to be David. But we're not David. We are, and this is the key, the Israelites. We're the crowd on the edge of the battlefield. This, after all, is a story told by the people of God, for the people of God, to build the people of God up and to encourage us. And none of the original hearers of this story was thinking, well, this is about me being like David. I wonder what I can learn from him. I could do that. That's not the lesson here. No one was thinking that for the very fact that if they were the original audience, they were thinking, well, we had the opportunity to be like David and we definitely weren't. We cowered in the background. Or if it was later generations, it was our ancestors had the opportunity to be like David and they didn't. They cowered in the background. So clearly we are not supposed to be David. Rather, the original audience heard this story and went, thank God for David. That's who we are, saying, thank God that he did it. So, can I encourage you? Picture yourself on the side of the battle with the Israelites, verse 24. Whenever we saw the man, we were filled with great fear and we ran. So to do this, it's going to require something of us that some people will find more difficult than others and that's this we're going to have to admit that we have some fears. In order to understand this story properly, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that there are things in this life that are completely out of our control, that we cannot overcome by ourselves, and that they do actually cause us fear. So can I ask you a difficult question? What are you afraid of? Here are some common fears. The fear of being alone forever. The fear of complete financial loss. The fear of never actually ever having enough money. The fear of health deteriorating. Getting old. You're all too young. It's real. <laughs> the fear of dying. The fear of being rejected. The fear of not being loved. The fear of not living a life of enough significance. The fear of being labeled or being an actual failure in someone's eyes. These are all very common fears. What are you afraid of? So in Goliath and David, what we have is two sort of contrasting ways of dealing with fear. Goliath represents the world's method for overcoming fears, which is this. Take control of your fears. Subdue your fears. Take them hostage by building yourself up mentally, physically, psychologically, until all your fears are banished from your mind. This is what Goliath does. Goliath is huge. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. 
No one's quite sure exactly how tall of this but is, but modern estimates put it between six foot nine, I'm six foot five, so you know, six foot nine and ten foot. That's how big he was. He's huge, but he's not just tall, he's also built. His bronze armor weighs 5,000 shekels in verse 5, which is about 125 pounds, the weight of a person. He's just carrying that around on him. And the tip of his javelin, just the tip, was weighed 600 shekels, which is about 15 pounds. 15 bags of sugar just for the tip of his javelin. So what he has done, he has taken his God-given physical, natural attributes, his hugeness, and he hasn't just relied on his hugeness, he has taken his hugeness down the gym. And he has got himself ripped. And he is huge in every way now. He has perfected himself. He looks in the mirror and goes, yes. <laughs> and this honing of his physical perfection serves really as the basis of his extraordinary self-confidence. Choose a man and have him come down to me, verse 8. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. To be a champion like this, effectively to say one person against one person and then the whole war will be over, which is actually a very efficient way of doing wars. We should probably learn from it. Let's just do that. Rocky against Drago and we'll be fine. It's a reference from 1980-something or other. Anyway... <laughs> But in order to be a champion, you would only ever put yourself up there to do this if not only you, but also everyone else on your side was supremely confident that you will win. Not only has Goliath dispelled all chance of failure from his mind, not only has he banished fear by sheer determination of perfecting himself, he has done so to such an extent that the rest of the army completely believe in him too. They are more than happy for Goliath to be their champion. Yes, Goliath, you're going to win. He is the perfect example of what the world says we should all do with our fears. We should overcome them. Uh, I googled overcoming fear. And here are a couple of tips from a very famous contemporary self-help guru suggesting to us how we can all just overcome fear. Are you ready? Number one, surround yourself with success. Whatever you hold in your mind, this guy says, who may be called Tony Robbins, whatever you hold in your mind on a consistent basis is exactly what you will experience in your life. When Goliath sees puny little boy like David before him, he, verse 42, despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. How dare this weakling even come into my orbit? I surround myself with success, and he does not look like success. I will destroy you. Secondly, visualize your goals. See yourself succeeding, so says Tony, and fully immerse yourself in your goal and you'll condition your brain to believe that anything is possible. Precisely what Goliath does here, verse 44. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. There is no chance that I will not destroy you. Build yourself up. 
Surround yourself with success. Visualize your goals, and all your fears will disappear. This is what the world says it is to be fearless. There is a fundamental problem with this approach, and it's this. It disconnects us from reality. The stark truth is the world is a dangerous place. There are lots of things it is actually entirely right to be fearful of. Sharks, for instance. Of course, there are things that we really should not be fearful of. There are irrational fears. And it's very good for us to understand what is rational and what is irrational. The cracks in the sidewalk, if we step on them, a crocodile will not eat you. But people can live by that. But the reality of the world in general is that bad things can and do happen all the time. Denying that is denying reality. Look at Goliath, for instance. He has banished all his fears, he's removed them from his mind, but then he gets himself killed precisely because he was not afraid of something that it would have been right to have some healthy fear and respect of. The point is this, try as we might, we cannot fully control our, our environment. We never have been able to and we never will be able to. So this is the world's version of how to be courageous, how to deal with your fears. But there's also this kind of skewed Christian version of it too. And it's just as flawed. It goes like this. Be a good Christian. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. Remain pure. Confess all your sins. And God will not let anything bad happen to you. Everything will go well for you. I mock it, but it's real, right? This is the kind of story that we tell kids. Be like David. Just have faith, and everything will come toppling down in front of you. But again, such an approach just takes us out from actual reality. After all, consider John the Baptist. Good old John. John was so good, so, so good. What a good Christian. Do you know what happened to him? Had his head chopped off. Jesus of Nazareth. So good he was actually perfect. Do you know what happened to him? Beaten, flogged, crucified. Uh, there's someone I know who, whose faith I have a huge amount of respect for. She's a very mature Christian. Uh, she is a wonderful example, really, of how a relationship with God can deepen and develop, and even sort of um, through probably the, actually the most hard times, um, come out even stronger and, and uh, more, more real and authentic. Um, but I remember and it was sort of a lifetime ago, a number of years ago, uh, we were talking, and her world had really fallen apart in really traumatic, very painful ways. Everything just sort of, um, uh, uh, just being destroyed, really. Uh, some of it was her fault, but most of it was really just um, the, the brokenness of the world and the sin of other people affecting her. And I remember her saying, I don't know why God would let this happen to me. I've done everything right. I've done, I've, I've never doubted him, I've always gone to church I've always done everything that I'm supposed to do, I've never got into a lot of trouble, I've saved myself from marriage all of this, why would he let it happen to me? Now obviously God was overjoyed that she'd done all of those things, that's how he's created the world, these boundaries for us to live in so that we can enjoy the fullness of life, not the non-fullness of life, but I tell this story because I know a number of people have grown up with something similar, just do everything right and everything will go well for you But if and when something terrible happens, 
It's such a shock. Such an unexpected bolt out of the blue. What on earth? Bad things happening to me. And then people can think, well, perhaps this whole Christian thing, perhaps this whole God thing was a complete sham. Was I sold a lie? Perhaps I should just ditch the whole thing. Can I say from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective taken as a whole, what God knows we need is not something to banish our fears. It's something to help us do the right thing despite our fears, in the midst of our fears. What we need is something to enable us to say, even though terrible things may happen to me, I will not be surprised, I will not deny that they are happening, but through it all, I will trust the living God. That's what we need, and that's what he gives us. What does he give to frightened people? He doesn't give them an example to follow. He doesn't tell them, be less fearful, be more like David. David is not there to expose how little faith you have. God doesn't give frightened people an example. He gives them a champion. David goes out in weakness and destroys the enemy of God because he is our champion and God is with him. And this is what God loves to do and always will do for his people. If Goliath represents all that's evil and destructive, all the fear that can affect you, David is our representative going out for us, not to show us up, but to fight for us. What God gives us is a way through the fear, a way through the death and the pain. Think about it this way. In order to be courageous, fear actually needs to be present. Otherwise, fearlessness is not courage. It's just fearlessness, right? You just... Courage comes in the midst of fear. That's what actually makes it courage. David doesn't deny his fears like Goliath. He doesn't work to banish them. I want to try and show that actually what David does is he admits them and he admits his powerlessness against them, but he trusts in something much, 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 much bigger. This may be a little bit of reading into the text, but I think if there is a moral message of David here, something that we can learn from and put into practice, it is this. David has learned the fundamentals to what it is to be a person of faith, to put his faith in Jesus, and it's this. One, that weakness is the way. It's the way in. But two, God uses us not in spite of our weakness, but because of it. It's not like, oh, you're weak, you're the best I can find, I'll use you, but you know, you could be a bit less weak. It's, oh great, you're weak. Now we can get to work. When David pleads his case to Saul to let him go out to Goliath, he begins by talking about himself. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, verse 34. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. But by the end, he's talking about God. Verse 37. The Lord, who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. God did it. Do you see what's going on here? David, I don't think, is saying, 
do you know what, guys? I'm pretty good with a sling, so I should go and, ha uh, go and kill him. He's not saying that. I mean, what chance did he have? 99 times out of 100, David goes out there with his sling, no armor. Goliath goes straight towards him and chops his head off. That's what happens 99 times out of 100. Saul knows it. It's why he says, you're going to need some armor. His brothers know it. It's why they say, you need to go home. And Goliath knows it, which is, I'm going to kill you. David is not saying, I'm pretty good with a sling, trust me. David is saying, I am well-versed in what it is to be weak. I know weakness very, very well. I experience it every day. He's saying, I know weakness. All I've got is a sling, so let's trust him, shall we? Every day I'm out in the fields, I'm exposed, I'm vulnerable. I've only ever got one place to turn. And what I've done is I've said to God, here I am, you're going to have to come through for me. Use what I've got. It's just a sling. And where does David's confidence come that God will act in this particular instance? Well, see how he frames the fight. Verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Why? Well, not because David is a better fighter, not because David really wants to win this fight, not because David thinks he deserves it, not even because David has faith, but, verse 36, because of Goliath, because Goliath has defiled the living God. For David, he knows Goliath's downfall is inevitable because he has picked a fight with the living God, and the living God always wins that fight every single time. So David knows that this Philistine will not last. It may not be at David's hand, but it is inevitable. And that is where David's confidence comes from. Now, in this instance, of course, David does win through because of God. David is our champion, but he might not have been. And, and here's the thing, if he'd gone out into the battle with the same speech and the same faith, and the same acknowledgement of his weakness, he still would have done the right thing even if he'd ended up dead. He still would have shown truly godly courage. Because courage is not saying, I will do the right thing because I've conquered all my fears and I know I can't fail. Godly courage is saying, I will do the right thing even though I might die. The reason that this story made it into the history of God's people is, of course, because God wins. It's him telling us that he does not give up on his people, that he comes through for them. We are the Israelites, cowering on the sidelines, quaking our boots, saying, thank God for David. Thank God for God. Thank God that he cares enough. Thank God for our champion. But there's also another reason for this story's enduring appeal. It, like so many other Old Testament stories, serves actually as a foreshadowing of something much bigger. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, 
the author is kind of looking back at all of these old heroes in chapter 11 from the Old Testament. He's saying, uh, consider Noah. He acted by faith. Consider Abraham acted by faith. Consider Rahab. She acted by faith. Consider all these heroes. And then he ends up with David. Consider David, who acted by faith. But then chapter 12, verse 1, he says this. Consider David, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because, he says, Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. David's dead, but Jesus is alive. And the word he uses there for pioneer, that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the word he uses is exactly the same Greek word that is used in the Greek translation of 1 Samuel to mean champion. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is our champion, the one true champion, the one who then, considering it joy, the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the ultimate champion. He goes into battle for you and for the whole universe. And on the cross, he won. He won, he won, he won, he won. He destroyed all fear. What Jesus does is he kills off the greatest threats to us on the cross. The threat of being alienated from God, of being alienated from one another, of being dead in sin, of lacking eternal life, of a lack of joy. He kills them off and he wins because he is the ultimate champion. He is what David did but didn't do completely. So, to end, what are you afraid of? Should we ask ourselves again? Let's go back to the list. Are you afraid of being alone forever? Of financial loss? Are you afraid of never having enough money? Are you afraid of deteriorating health? Are you afraid of dying? Of being rejected, of not being loved? Are you fearful that your life will not have enough significance? What are you afraid of? As Christians, what we're called to do is not deny these fears, nor is it to think we must master them. As Christians, what we're called to do is to bring them, to bring them to the table to bring them to the cross of Jesus and say, these are my fears. This is what I am so scared of. Will you show me the way through? Will you bring joy instead of despair? Will you bring glory and praise? Will you bring comfort and life where all I feel is death, here are my fears. This is what we're called to do. And Jesus carries them. And ultimately, he's won over them and destroyed them forever. And he beckons us to walk through with him. Why is it that there are some people, some people who just, despite all circumstances, can remain so hopeful and so joyful,
It's because Jesus has been their champion. They've let him fight, and he's won, and he always wins. So none of us need to be ruled by the things that we're afraid of. Not anymore. And that's what we should do now. What I suggest we do, we're going to take communion, and we're going to remember the true champion who destroyed it all. And as you come, would you picture yourself holding those things you were thinking about in your hands? Would you picture your fears? And would you hand them over to him and receive his life instead? Receive his joy and his comfort. Receive that he is fighting for you and that he wins for you. Good, good. Let's stand. What we're going to do is there'll be two uh, stations. There's one this side, one that side. Uh, there is gluten-free wafers in the middle, small little thing. The wine is non-alcoholic. We invite anyone who wants to respond to Jesus, anyone who would like to respond to what Jesus has done, who he is, you can come. There's no barrier other than I would like to respond. So come, receive the free gift on offer, and allow him to give you a way through. So the band are going to play. Come up in your own time. You can uh, take it and then go back to your seats, and then we will close with um, praying for anyone who'd like to be prayed for.